May I speak in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, a few weeks ago, Hannah got a very difficult reading to do, and I must admit I had a certain sympathy with her. Sympathy, that is, until I saw the reading I had to deal with today. And this gospel reading, I have to say, is undoubtedly the hardest one I've ever had to try to preach on. And to make it worse, despite thinking that I knew the gospels inside out, I honestly can say that I don't remember this parable. And I can only assume that I must have blanked it because it didn't make any sense to me. So, when I started to look at various commentaries, I wasn't actually best pleased to find that most of them also have a problem with this parable. Words like most challenging text and vexing exegetical difficulties, whatever that means, did not inspire me. And the variety of interpretation defies belief and just demonstrates to me that no one is really sure what this is about. So what's the problem? Let's just look at that uh, parable again. And in very brief terms, a whistleblower informs on a manager tasked with looking after a rich man's property, namely debt collection. The manager is accused of squandering, now keep that word in mind, squandering the property under his remit, and he's fired. But strangely, he's given time to draw up an account of what he's actually done. Now, this manager panicking because he's losing his livelihood and presumably his accommodation, comes up with a plan to make himself more popular to the debtors by substantially reducing the monies or goods they owe. And he reasons that if he does them a good deed, then they would be obligated under the honour system to help him when he's out of work. Okay? So let's just pause and think about that one for a moment. Debt collection, tax collection, we know that in the first century Palestine, this was not an honourable occupation. Firstly, it was against Jewish law. Jewish law says you cannot apply interest to loans. And normally, the task or the job would have been subcontracted out, such that the debt collector could actually buy the debt and then put his own mark on it. Now, these collectors were understandably considered the lowest of the low in both religious and social circles, because they were just making money, dishonestly, if you like, out of the poor. So our manager doesn't exactly start from a high point. And he was almost certainly profiting out of the debt that was owed to his employer. Now, to be fair, it's unclear in the text whether his plan to substantially reduce the debts overnight involved him cutting his own margin or that of his employer. But either way, his ability to do this is inherently dishonest. The only winners, seemingly, are the debtors. And even then, the large margins involved hint at the huge markup that he'd put on them in the first place. Now, if you're wondering where all this is going, I can tell you it gets even more confusing, because now, in line eight, we have these words. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And this, frankly, is the line that throws all the commentaries into confusion. How can a guy who is fiddling the books get caught, do some more fiddling, then get praised by the guy who's actually fiddling? I, <laughs> to make some sense out of that one. 
So for about two weeks, I gave this some thought. And I still couldn't reconcile the parable with the variety of interpretations. And then out of nowhere, I got a thought, which was running around my head. And it sort of made some sense to me. So please, just bear with me on this one. I believe that this parable is about the use of resources at our disposal and dealing with the hand that we're set. And it also touches a little bit on earthly versus spiritual wealth. Now, those of you who remember my sermon a month ago will recall that I, discovered, I discussed the difficulty in, quote, serving two masters and how well we do to maintain a balance between our earthly lives and our spiritual ones. Now, I know it wasn't an easy or a comfortable subject. And uh, although my intention was simply to get people thinking about their own sort of life balance, I was really surprised the number of people who actually came up to me afterwards and wanted to talk about it. And it's interesting, and I suspect it is a good example of God's sense of humour, that today we have another parable which might just offer some contemporary answers to how we maintain that balance that I was referring to. But first, let's just go to the difficult bit. Why would the dishonest manager get commended by his boss for cutting the debts and trying to ingratiate himself with the very people he had been cheating? Just stand back a minute and look at it a different way. God is not expecting us to be perfect. Very few of us are. And in fact, it's probably fair to say that we are all work in progress. The dishonest manager, even motivated by his fear and his self-interest, has actually created some ripples that might bring good. The debtors have their debts reduced or restored to perhaps a more manageable level. They will undoubtedly feel better about themselves, about the manager, and ironically, probably, about the boss. Because after all, it's his debt. The goodwill generated might make them feel happier and more loyal, generate better relationships and possibly even more business. The boss may in turn not be so happy, but he could be amenable to lower charges and as he sees the benefits of goodwill and increased business, that's the bonus. And of course, he was already very, very rich anyway. But hopefully, and this is more to the point, hopefully the dishonest manager despite perhaps not having the best of motives, will learn a lesson and appreciate that good relationships and friendships are actually more important than creaming some money off the top. So you could say, in some ways, that he's actually made the best of a bad job. And his actions, whether he meant them or not in the first place, have actually brought about some good. Maybe the boss is right to commend him after all. Maybe he's a bit shrewder than he thinks. And if you think about it, this is actually probably more realistic because you couldn't really expect this dishonest manager to suddenly, just like that, turn into a paragon of virtue. It doesn't happen. We all make decisions based on what's in front of us. And not all of those decisions are done for the right reasons. That's why we're work in progress. So just set that aside for a moment as well and look at the whole text. Now, first of all, I honestly think it would be a huge mistake to read this parable in isolation. Immediately before it, Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, with which I'm sure you're all familiar. 
It's a similar theme if you think about it. The profligate son squandering, there's that word again, squandering his inheritance, but he's repentant. But before he's restored to his family, he hits the depths of despair and expects the worst. And then immediately following the reading is a third parable, the story of Lazarus and the rich man, where the man's wealth, the rich man's wealth and his selfish use of it condemns him to Hades, whilst Lazarus who has nothing, is taken into heaven. And when the rich man actually begs Abraham to warn his brothers of his fate, Abraham refuses on the grounds that they should read scripture and take note, i.e. it's not as if you don't know what needs to be done. Now there's a bit of a theme here, if you think about it. In each parable, it's how the resources, in this case wealth, it's how these resources are used that is the issue. And in Luke, this is quite a common theme. There are several parables in which rich or characters of status suffer role reversals or social upheaval or some form of crisis. And in every case, their only help is someone below them in the social scale. If you want another example, think of the Good Samaritan. The message is in that story. So this role reversal or upending of the social order is, of course, Jesus' message. And if you think Luke starts this very early in the Magnificat, in the Song of Mary, when Mary praises God, saying, he's put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Complete role reversals. And here, in the three parables... We have that in practice. In the prodigal son, the son learns the hard way that wealth misused can really bring you down. In today's story, the manager is caught out by his greed. And although he's not repentant, he does try to use the money to buy himself out, which does have other effects. And in the story of Lazarus, the rich man is oblivious, totally oblivious to anything other than his own comfort. And he pays the ultimate price Each of these three parables clearly warn that riches on earth cannot be taken into the next life. And more importantly, everyone will be judged and their fate depend on how they use the resources they have access to. In Jesus' parables, this wealth and how it is used is often used as a spiritual barometer. And this is the contemporary uh, message. In each of our stories, each of the three parables, the characters have a choice. All three are entrusted with wealth or resources, and it's their choice what to do with them. Just as today we're entrusted to work with what we have and to deal with the hand that we've been given. It may not be an easy lot, and obviously some have more than others, but our faith tasks us to work at making it better for everyone not just ourselves. And it's not just about money. We all have the ability to influence and better use the resources we've been given. On a big scale, we're already seeing people starting to take control of the future. Climate control, biodiversity, plastic waste are no longer someone else's problem. And strategies and plans are being put into place because ordinary people like us not just the elected leaders or businessmen 
are starting to appreciate the damage we're doing to the planet. But we've talked about that a lot lately in our sermons. And I just want to come away from that and think, just consider for a moment, that actually it might be on the smaller stage where we all possess skills and resources and the capability to introduce change and make things happen today. We've far more influence on our own destinies and on those around us than we've ever had at any time in the past. Our actions and the way we lead our lives inevitably has an impact on others, sometimes deliberate, sometimes totally unseen. Everything we do is like a stone that's dropped into a pond. The impact just spreads out further than we'd ever think. And if we look at our lives as a series of opportunities and choices, and whether we see those opportunities or uh, those opportunities as God actually working in our lives, or whether it's just we just look at it as life ourselves, it doesn't really matter. But just consider, could we choose to just take the chance maybe to talk to someone who's lonely, to spend a few hours working in a charity shop, to read to a child, visit an elderly person, smile at a stranger, share a meal with someone, or simply feed the neighbour's cat. They're all small things, yeah, sure, but they are using the skills and resources that God has given us. And we're using them for the good of others. And the impact on those people may be so much more than the effort that we have to expend. Now, in my previous sermon, I talked about that balance between earthly and spiritual focus. But it can never really be as black and white as that. And I wasn't really trying to talk about the time spent praying or in church. Because if we did that, it would worry us that it's too small a proportion of our lives. But just consider that anything, anything we do for other people, for the good of others, falls into that spiritual category. Even if we don't recognise it as such. The balance is almost certainly higher than we appreciate, just by living lives as Christians. But then it doesn't hurt, particularly at creation, creation tide, to maybe just give some thought to how we are using the resources and skills that we personally have been entrusted with. The differential that makes a group of ordinary people into a really caring, joined-up Christian community is their ability to do the simple things well. Amen.